Hi guys, I'm fantasy author J.H. Fleming. And I'm science fiction and fantasy author Philip Dreyer Duncan. And for the first time ever on the show, Christopher is not with us tonight, which is really telling because if I'm totally honest, this is our second attempt at recording the show because we just went through 60 mile per hour winds and allegedly hail and stuff. Fortunately, our guest tonight is super cool and was willing to hang out a little bit and work with us through the storms. But we're just going to start the whole episode over because it was <laughs> a disaster there for a while. So fortunately, we're all safe and happy. All right. Well, our guest tonight, according to his Twitter, our guest is a juggler, a Hollywood small shot, a novelologist, whatever that means. <laughs> I don't I didn't know no, novelologist was a word, but he's also an author with some really cool titles to his name, which we will talk about momentarily. Welcome to the show for a second time, A. Lee Martinez. I am happy to be here for a second time. Novelology <laughs> is the science of novel ofology, but it's 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 very complicated. It's it's not not always ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> it also sounds a little bit made up, but that is your job, right? All words are made up. I think as we, as Thor pointed out, all words are made up. <laughs> <laughs> all right, fair enough. Well, since you're here, we've got to plug some of your work. So let me pull my list back up because one of the things I wanted to talk about was your awesome titles. So Lee is the author of titles such as Gill's All Fright Diner, which I'm amazed I said right twice tonight. Yeah. <laughs> the Constance Verity trilogy, trilogy, right? Yep. A Nameless Witch in the Company of Ogres, Emperor Mollusk versus the Sinister Brain. How do you come up with these great titles? I am not as good as you. <laughs> well, as I, I said previously, that no one heard. Uh, I came up with the uh, <laughs> the first one, Gills Off Right Diner, because they when I was writing, they said, you know. Uh, they always change the title. So I didn't worry too much about that. I just had that as a Holden title and then they ended up using it. And while it's a decent title, it's, it's a little tricky. It's hard to remember. It's easy to mispronounce. It's easy. It doesn't, it doesn't stay as, as confident. So after that, I, I really thought about my titles and almost all the books are my titles. Mostly I just think of either something that sounds cool or is, you know, catchy. Uh, like I, I really like, like the automatic detective. I try to capture yeah. something too that sort of fits the mood of the book. I enjoy like pulpy, dramatic kind of titles anyway. So that's how it works. <laughs> that's fair. And something I didn't ask you earlier that just occurs to me now. So I know the Constance Verity is a trilogy, but most of your work, most of your novels are standalones, aren't they? Yeah, they're uh, all standalone, all separate universes. All se they have no relation to each other. Completely different. The last three, the Constance Verity trilogy was because I moved to uh, Simon & Schuster and we were trying something different. But like the one I'm working on now is, again, a completely standalone novel that I'm, I'm currently working on. I kind of get that, right? Because like, I always, like I have series, right? I have my Blade Mage series that I've done several books in, but I often feel the pull to just work on something new and different. Is that what pulls you to do that? Well, you know, I think it comes down to there's a risk reward of any choice you make. Sure. So when I first started writing, I did standalone novels because I didn't want to you know, go to an agent or an editor and make a pitch and then be there be like, well, we really like what you write, but we're not interested in this. And I'm like, well, all I have is this, you know? Mm -hmm. So originally it was sort of a, a spread out, just do different things. And then it sort of became a habit, which I really like one because I don't, I honestly don't read a lot of fantasy today because I'm not dedicated enough to a series and I get a little bored. I mean, even before this, I got, I got bored by like you know there's new star trek and stuff like that but i've seen like as much star trek as i need to see and it's not it's not meant as an insult to star trek it's just i don't get excited about star trek anymore mm -hmm. and so part of it was that decision and then also i just i just really like exploring new ideas and and anytime you kind of stick with the same universe you're kind of even in a fantastical setting you become kind of stuck you know the first time you can do what you want in the world the second time well you've kind of laid down some ground rules you've laid down some kind of mood and emotion whereas like i've really enjoyed messing around with different sort of subgenres and ideas. I mean, the, the advantage of that is you can pick up most of my books and just read them. The disadvantage is I am asking the reader to kind of make a gamble and it's harder to do that. Where if you know you have a series and a sequel, you know, you might like it. There's also stories you can't tell in standalones that you can tell in series. So 
I don't know. For me, I just like it because mainly I like starting with a fresh slate and doing whatever I want. Like, I don't have to worry mm. how the monsters are or the magic or the science fiction. But I realize it comes with a disadvantage. Now, I do think it's helped me in, in one way. It's given me a pretty good reputation in the, the movie and television industry as being very creative. And it's not because I've written more. Lots of writers have written more. But I've written so many different kinds of things that they it, it gives the appearance that I've written more than I have. And I've thought that I've written a lot, but it gives this illusion of, <laughs> of well, I mean, not illusion. It gives just this breadth of options. And, and since, uh, talk, you know, we talked earlier about the thing that got deleted, but options, like uh, for a while, I was making some pretty good money because I had so many different things optioned. And that just is a nice thing, because if I do one thing, you can only get, really get the option once. Uh, so yes. it sort of became a habit, but I still like doing it. I sort of get what you're saying, because it's almost like in the same way, speaking of Hollywood, right? It's almost in the same way that an actor gets, you know, kind of typecasted. I think that does mm. happen sometimes with authors where it's like, oh, they're sort of known for their urban fantasy. So that must be all that they're good at. And, you know, I'm not going to try their other sci-fi thing because they're an urban fantasy author, you know, something like that. I kind of get what you're, you know. Yeah. And it's very much similar because like a lot of actors do become typecast, but they make a career out of that. They manage to sure. find a niche sure. and hold it really well. Um, and other ones get stuck. It limits their growth. And so it's the same way. I mean, anytime in this business, any decision you're really making in life, you're making a gamble, you just don't necessarily realize it. But that's the kind of gamble I've made. And it's mostly paid off. I mean, you can't visit alternate universes. So maybe if I did a series, I'd be more popular. But I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, like, you're making a living at it and doing it the way you want. So yeah. that's really what more could you ask for, right? That's true. That's true. And you, since you never know, I mean, I've been very lucky, so I'll, I'll take the luck. Sure, sure. And then, of course, we have to go back to the juggling, the juggling thing again, because that was funny to me. So <laughs> you're a juggler. We're going to pretend like this is the first time. <laughs> I, I am an amateur juggler. I am not very good. I'm OK. But I, again, I like this telling the story because it's my funny bit. When I was almost going to give up writing, I decided maybe to go into juggling because that's a logical progression of a sensible <laughs> career from a, from the instability of writing and the disappointment and heartbreak. I had a girlfriend who uh, did a renaissance fair one time and we did it for like like a month and a half. And uh, I was the juggler there just because their jugglers canceled. So I got to be so I have, I have been officially the juggler at the renaissance fair. Oh. So that's that's it. That's the, and again some alternate universe. Ailey Martinez is not a successful writer. It's everything, everywhere, all at once. There's two versions of me that will meet up, and they can tell you a story, and they can juggle. Okay. <laughs> what Renaissance Festival was it? It's awesome. I forget now. It's been so long. Oh, right. It was it was a small one. It was cool. They had like jousting, and it was a nice little fair. But I don't remember what it was. I mean, it's been so long. Nice. We always go every year to the one in uh, Muskogee, Oklahoma. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's talk about the Hollywood small shot thing again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the Hollywood small shot thing is actually, I think bragging. Cause I don't think I'm Hollywood small shot. I think I'm Hollywood tiny shot, but that's a different thing. <laughs> it's more wishful thinking, but for a while I uh, was uh, doing pretty well. I was uh, getting things optioned quite a bit. And I was also a uh, DreamWorks animation, like out, most outside consulted writer. It's been a while since that happened, but I still have a lot of things optioned in development and stuff like that. So I put that on there, like the idea that maybe, Someday, you know, I mean, but, uh, small shot right now because it's mostly just possibilities. I mean, in fairness, you did have one of your books. Your book Monster was adapted into Monster Run as a Chinese film, right? Yes, a Chinese language film. It's on uh, streaming on Netflix USA right now. Other places, I assume it was going to be released in the theaters. But, you know, the pandemic hit and everybody got hit by that. You know, why does everything bad happen to me? <laughs> no, um <laughs> So that's kind of cool. I mean, that's farther than a lot of writers have done. And it's pretty good. I like the movie. Mm -hmm. Especially, uh, I always like to talk about, like, when it was on uh, streaming on Netflix, the opening is very much from, like, the book. And so, like, people were like, I think China stole your book. <laughs> like, oh, no, we get to the end. They give me credit. They give me credit. They gave me money to give me credit. But it was fun. I mean, it's, as I said before, it's uh, one more Chinese adapted film than I have to my name. So congratulations. That's cool. Yeah, and, and I've had a couple of my books translated into Chinese, so... Monster was oh, one cool. of them. So that was pretty cool. I have the copies. I think three of them, uh, Monster, uh, Mag Detective, and Divine Misfortune were all translated in the Chinese, which is pretty neat. That is cool. 
Well, and we talked about it before, but the uh, last adventure of Constance Verity might have some more going on with it that kind of got stalled because of the writer's strike, right? Yeah, the writer's strike uh, stalled that. I mean, it was, they renewed the option and the option is specifically for three months or until the writer's strike ends. So I'm hoping that means they've got something lined up, hopefully. But you never know. Things change all the time until they show up. Until, until there's actually filming going on, you never right. know. But uh, again, uh, the writer's strike, why, again, why is everything bad to me? No, I mean, I support the writer's strike, so I sure. have to. I'm cool with that. And hopefully, you know, won't delay it. It'll delay it, but hopefully something will happen. Sure. Yeah, and I think we got. We were talking about options a little bit when the uh, when the weather cut us off. And I thought just for our audience, if you want to talk about options a little bit again. Okay. So, yeah, the uh, so options... From a writer's perspective, usually what happens is somebody will come and approach your agent, or maybe you maybe, and they'll want to option. And an option comes in many forms. The first option is where they get the rights to develop. They're not doing anything with it. They haven't done anything yet. Usually it's a studio that comes to you with an option, and they're trying to get the funding and get actors attached and get a script and all that kind of stuff. Basically, you sign a contract, and they have exclusive rights for usually about a year and a half to do what they're going to do with it, try, try to develop it. And then usually there's an automatic renewal, like they can automatically renew it if they want at the end of that time. They don't always do that, but sometimes if they're farther along, they will. And then sometimes there's later, like the, the cost of the option kind of expired and then they, they reworked it. And so that's cool, you know. But mostly an option is just the potential and it doesn't really go anywhere. It's sure. just a little bit of extra money you'll get. I think you hear all the time about like, you know, I remember when somebody was talking about Squid Games and they're like, this guy tried 10 years to get something developed. I'm like, yeah, join the club. That's that's normal. <laughs> but So options are great. I mean, I'm very fortunate that I've gotten quite a few and there are some, I've had, you know, some pretty good years from options, but it's mostly just a wait and see kind of thing. And most writers I know treat it as just extra money that might lead to something else, but you don't, you don't really count on it. You just, you're glad to get it. Sure. And sometimes the writer works with the, uh, the studio I've had. My book, uh, Divine Misfortune, was optioned by DreamWorks Animation, and they completely, like, even when they optioned, they were like, we don't want to do this story, we just like this concept, and we want you to help us write a screenplay. So I did that. I was part of the development process of that. But other ones, like, again, like the Monster Run movie, not only did they not insult me, they just made it. They, I never <laughs> saw it until it came out. I, I mean, which is fine. I'm fine. They paid me money. They did their thing. But most of the time, it's in between. Like, Automatic Detective is being developed as a TV show, and... I got to talk to like the creators who are working on it and and see some of their their prototype like art because it's animated and you know it's fingers crossed it's really cool and and so you know I usually my opinion is I'll get involved as little or as much as they want me to to help them in the process. Sure. All right, now Lee, for your Hollywood stuff, now does that go through your normal literary agent or how does that work? Like I didn't ask you that already. So yeah, you asked me that, but I'm just right. I'm prepared. I'm, I still had to, I listened to the question. Oh, what a surprising <laughs> question. <laughs> so I'm represented by Sally Harding uh, out of Canada with the Cook Agency, and she does my literary stuff. She did do some of my early option stuff. That's how actually I met her. But right now she also works with Joe Veltri out of Gersh, and Gersh is an L.A. Mm-hmm. agency. So they work together for most of my uh, movie TV stuff uh, deal. And, you know, it's just about expertise. Like Sally wasn't bad. She, she knows what she's doing. But he just, he's a little got more connections. He knows stuff. Uh, and so it's, so I have, you know, multiple, I mean, the same way I've got like, you know, foreign deals and that's my, she handles that, but the agency has like people who handle that stuff. So, you know, if you're lucky and I'm lucky right now is there's, you know, there's like a small army that kind of helps get things in place for you. Very cool. All right. Let's uh, talk about craft a little bit. So what does Lee's writing process look like? And you might have said some of this already, but I didn't hear any of it because that was about the time the weather came. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw you go away and I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to keep talking. I enjoy it. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I mean, it varies. I'm, I'm behind. I shouldn't, I should, I'm on my new project because I kind of, it's easy to kind of, I get, I never get mad when somebody's like, oh, I'm, I want to write, but I don't find time. I'm like, I get paid and I still screw it up. <laughs> but <laughs> but for me it's usually i do most of my writings on monday tuesday and wednesday because that's when my workshop meets my writer's workshop meets on wednesdays and so i if usually if i'll want to get something done so i can go up there and read something and you know get some feedback i'll do more usually if i need to if i'm really on the ball uh, right now i usually try to get up and then do some writing and then maybe i'll it doesn't be that much but it's enough to keep the juices flowing and then i'll do more I don't tend to, I know we tend to think of like, they call it like plotting or pantsing, you know, but I tend to go with sketching. I, I tend to write with the idea that nothing is really permanent until sure. I work on the edit. 
So sometimes that works great. Sometimes I, I kind of just fly through a novel and other times I end up writing a lot of stuff that's going to be deleted or doesn't belong there at the final product. So the way I view it is it's all just kind of ephemeral until I kind of finally commit to what it is. So usually about it's not about until halfway through the novel that I even realize what it's about. And then I kind of go back and edit and make it make sense. So Sure, sure. And we've talked about it before, like, you know, how we kind of both of us kind of early on were more pantsers and became more plotters over the years. But actually, I'm trying a brand new process with this new book just for giggles, just to try something different, because my time is so limited right now. Mm -hmm. I'm actually trying to write a chapter and then do all three drafts of editing on that chapter and then move on to the next one. Yeah, I just thought it would, it's not something I've never tried it before. And I just thought, well, sometimes I get slow because I'll see like, oh, I need to do the second draft on that. It's like, oh, that seems like such a project. I'm going to go work on this other thing. And then, you know, things inevitably stay behind. And it just was like, you know, maybe while I'm in this sort of season where I don't have as much time to write, I'll just try this and see if it works for me. You know, I mean, that's that's my, always my advice to anybody is. You don't need to do what anybody does except your, what works for you. And I think also you just got to accept that it's constantly changing. Like this new book I'm working on, like I was about two thirds of the way through and then I, I lost about a third, maybe. I'm not sure yet because I'm as I rewrote it, mm-hmm. and that kind of sucks. You know, that's kind of frustrating. But I've had other books that that wasn't a problem, I mean. And so if it becomes too much of a problem, I'll have to change. Yeah. But yeah, you, and, you know, everybody's got their schedule. Everyone's got their real life obligations. Everyone's got how their brain works. So, and it's not ever finished. I mean, I write differently than I did when I started and it's okay, but it is about finding what works. And if it doesn't work, don't force it. And and that's the main thing. You know, I, I think it's really easy to put yourself in a position of failure where you feel like you're not doing enough or you're not doing it right. Mm-hmm. And then you just, you discourage yourself. And it's, there's so much discouragement in this job already in this business. And we don't, you know, we don't need that to it to ourselves. <laughs> No, I think that's a really, really good, very pertinent message, actually. I agree with you 100%. That's great. Speaking of your editing process, what does that look like? How many drafts do you normally go through before you kick it off to the publisher? Well, so usually by the time I get to the end, you know, I've got the book. The book by the end, when I'm writing the final version of the ending, I pretty much know what's the book. And then I go through one more time, but I've been doing a lot of editing sort of surreptitiously without even realizing it as I do it. Mm-hmm. Then I go through and I edit again, make sure it agrees with itself, make sure it, you know, look for little, you know, little problems. So really, I mean, if if you were just going to count like drafts, it's really like one, two drafts, but really it's many more. It's just like all these micro drafts as I go. Sure. Then I send it off, you know, so I don't really keep track of even first or second draft. I mean, by the time it's finished, it's usually on its it's really close to final draft because that's when I'm putting things together. The closest to be sometimes there might be like gaps where it literally I'll just put like a little note to myself about something important happens here. And then I have to figure that out. <laughs> right. <laughs> so usually by the time I get, so even though if it works well and it doesn't always work well, cause I sometimes blow it, but I've really done like probably like six or seven drafts in just in small versions. Okay. I don't, you know, I don't know if I've ever actually said this on the podcast or not. Maybe I have, I can't remember, but, some years back, I was building a website for one of the companies I work for. Not like, you know, like not like coding one, but just piecing one together. Right. And it was like a wiki. And so there was like a lot of places where I would start a page and be like, OK, I have this information, but I'm going to need to create a link to wherever later. And I was like, how am I going to I need a searchable way to find any place I need to put a link and I need to use language that no, like there's no way I would get it mistaken. And so I started putting in parentheses, save Zelda everywhere that I needed to put a link. And uh, I carried that over to my fiction and and I've been doing that for years. So anytime I'm like, oh crap, I need to add this thing. I add parentheses, I type save Zelda dash and then whatever my notes are to myself. And then at the end, you know, when I'm on like my last draft, I will intentionally do a search for save Zelda just to make sure I've got all of those. Yeah, I do the, uh, (laughs) I do an ampersand and then I'll usually put in all caps, something like, you know, they need to get to this place somehow. (laughs) yeah i I originally started with something really inappropriate for myself but then i realized that i sometimes (laughs) write inappropriate things so that didn't work so then i just was like i saved zelda save zelda something that you're not gonna get confused about yeah yeah (laughs) um so 
do you have in your process any like first readers or anything or does it just when you're done with it it goes to your editor at whatever publisher well i mean i read a lot of it in my workshop not usually the whole thing my writers group the dfw writers workshop um we have i think about 100 members 150 but we read at like smaller groups you know so I usually go mm-hmm. through that, and I t- in, in, in any parts I read, I'll, inter- I'll integrate those notes. Uh, I used to have more beta readers, but now I usually just send it off. Once I'm happy with it, mm-hmm. I send it off. I'm not usually that concerned. I feel like I've been doing this long enough that it could always be stronger, which is why I like getting notes back. But also, I'm not mm-hmm. worried about – I figure a lot of the editing process will come with the editor, and they'll help me fix stuff. So usually I don't bother with the beta reader too much anymore. You know, I'm glad you said that because a while back on the podcast, we talked about like writing groups and things. And I, and I remember what I said that I don't think I quite illustrated what, what I meant really was there came a point like, so early on, it was like as many people as I could get to read it, you know? Mm-hmm. And then it was like, as I kind of started leveling up and actually learning and, you know, crossing that million words and all that, you know, kind of stuff, it got to a place where it was like, oh, I kind of know what I'm doing and I need to be really cautious about where I take advice from now because I'm actually learning and I don't want to unlearn or I don't want to dirty the things I actually have figured out. And so it was like, okay, rather than doing a writing group or having a bunch of betas, I'm going to take my criticism from JH for one. Um, but then like my yeah. editor's, at my publishers and things, and then the readers themselves, right? When it's out there, what am I getting back in my reviews? That sort of thing, rather than, you know, betas and and, and so on, right? Well, and, and uh, I mean, again, I think, again, everything can be improved. I'm not saying that, like, uh, usually when I read in my workshop, sure. I'm, I'm pretty solid. Like, I'm a pretty solid writer. Now, I, I don't think that's, I hope that's not arrogant. But, like, there's always I some, don't, like, no, that's, that's what I'm saying, is I think that's yeah. a fair, like, I think that's a fair point. Like, there is a point where you've done it so much that you're like, I do understand craft now, you yeah. know? Yeah. And so you get some good feedback. I'll, get, I'll almost always integrate little bits in here, pieces, because it's like, oh, that can make it a little stronger. That can make it a little stronger. Um, it's just usually by the time I've gotten to the end, I'm just, I, first of all, I'm usually behind, so I need to send it off. I can't have somebody. <laughs> That's also my problem. <laughs> my original beta reader is my mom, and she was pretty good. She was, she's not a writer, but she was always really good at giving, like, you know, the kind of notes you, you want. Not like, yeah. this should happen here. It's more like, well, this isn't very satisfying. You know, or this character, you know, I didn't like this, this moment. It just didn't feel right. And I'm like, okay, now I got to figure out how to do this. So she was really good at giving me some good feedback like that. Sure. And that's really useful. One of my books, like I got the edits back and it didn't feel like I got enough edits. So I was a little worried. I'm not gonna say which one, but I was like, I literally was like, mom, can you read this and see if it sucks? And she was like, oh, it's good. I'm like, okay, okay. I I trust the editor now is that they were right. Okay. That kind of reminds me of something um, Neil Gaiman had said in one of his, you know, writing advice videos about when you get feedback from readers, if they say something is wrong, they're almost always right. Mm-hmm. And if they try to tell you how to fix it, they're almost always yeah. wrong. Yeah, it, it, so, yeah. Like, they can find the things that need to be fixed, but they have no idea how right. to fix it's, it. It's, the, it's like uh, they know it doesn't feel right, but they don't know why it doesn't feel right. And that's 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 their that's not mm-hmm. their job. So, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, that you can use our football analogy from last week on that too, right? There's plenty of people who can sit on their couch and be like, Patrick Mahomes did not throw that ball right, but they are not going to be able to go out in the field and do what he needs to do, right? No. I would have thrown more touchdowns. That's what I would have done. Mm-hmm. Good, good job. If, 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 if you score more points than the, uh, the other team, then you win. Yeah. <laughs> All right. One last thing here for you, Lee. Advice for newbies. What would be your advice for, for a newbie author? Uh, well, you know, my advice is always the the same, which is if you want to do this, you know, really think about you can take the rejection that's going to happen. But at the beginning, you don't have to worry about that too much. You just have to write. And if not, go juggle. That's right. Or go juggling. This is a stable world of juggling. <laughs> so you go, I think it's you write. You get better at it. You you focus on how to improve, and then you you know you gotta polish and you gotta submit. I think that's the ninety percent. I think most people don't write, and the ones that do write don't finish, and the ones that do finish mm-hmm. don't submit. And you know your mm-hmm. book might suck, but if you if you finish it and submit it, it's got a shot. You know your story. The thing that you even if you don't finish it, you can't get it done. If it doesn't get submitted, you don't get anything done. It's not going to happen. I think if I was going to pick one advice that I've recently come across that I think is what I would like to say is 
don't fall in love with the first thing you write. You're not ready. Yeah. You don't know what you want to write. You don't know yeah. how you want to write. You're not sure about your voice. You're just developing the tools. And I think so often I meet new writers who are like, this is my idea. And I'm going to write a you know trilogy of trilogies. And I'm going to do this. And this is my world. And this is all the characters. And you're like, you know, it might even be a great idea. It might even be a great story, potentially. But you may not be in the place to write it. But more importantly, you don't know who you are yet as a writer. So I say, give yourself permission to experiment when you start. And I think that's really important. And don't don't get too, again, don't expect to, to win the basketball game the first time you step on the court. And I think too often, it's really easy to get stuck on that. I think that is really good advice. And on that note, we will do the news. All right. Well, our first bit of news this week is a pretty big one, I think. So Paramount has reached a deal to sell Simon & Schuster to private investment firm KKR for a low, low 1.62 billies. Last year, (laughs) (laughs) last year, Penguin Random House tried to scoop (laughs) up Simon & Schuster. Oh, you're good. (laughs) No, no, I like it. I feel very hip now. Go, go. Oh, you know, I told someone the other day, I said, so someone I know, and they were around some strangers, I was at work, and I was getting ready to leave. And I said, Hey, I'm, uh, I'm hitting the skids. And the person looked at me and was like, I don't know what that means. And I said, uh, <laughs> I was trying to sound cool. And I see that you were not prepared to go on this sounding cool journey with me. So I'm just going to say that I am leaving now. And one of the other one of the other guys who was sitting there just without like even missing a beat just looked at me and was like, I thought it sounded cool. <laughs> uh, so I thanked him and I got out of there. So anyway, yeah, if you remember last year, Penguin Random House tried to scoop up Simon and Schuster, but the mm-hmm. courts were like, nah, bruh, it's not happening. So since KKR isn't part of the Big Five, then it looks like the Big Five shall potentially remain the Big Five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I think that's probably good news for the industry. I think so. I guess it's parallel news for the industry. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Um, I mean, I just think probably better that the big one, the Big Five, doesn't shrink anymore if it can be helped. Yes, but maybe yes, that's totally, my own bias, totally. right? No, no, no. Yeah. Right. Um, so the deal is expected to finalize by the end of this year, and I guess we'll we'll see what happens. I guess the chairman of media at KKR, Richard Sarnoff, actually used to be the CFO at, what does I say, Bantam Doubleday, and he was involved with the acquisition of Random House mm. at one point. So apparently KKR has somebody, and I don't know a lot about KKR, I actually just heard their name mentioned otherwise recently, I guess I have their hands in a lot of things, but that they have somebody with some experience in the publishing industry gives me some hope that maybe this will be a good thing, right? I I guess optimism is not my strong suit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know what, Lee, we're in chaos episode. It's all, it's all optimism. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. (laughs) All right. JH with our next one. All right, so a new article um, on Good E-Reader. This one's probably not surprising for most people, but um, they have a new study out that shows reading fiction in particular is good for our brains. I feel like that's kind of something everyone's always talked about. Like, you know, there's that idea that reading's good for you and hear people, you know, people who read are, you know, smarter, more creative. But um, this modern study actually shows that reading fiction activates different neural paths in our brains and increases neuroplasticity. So now there's some really cool new science to support what we always kind of knew. Uh, it says you, I, uh, readings for nerds. Yeah, readings for <laughs> nerds. Um, I thought this one was kind of cool because I think I, I've heard people make the argument that, you know, n- reading nonfiction is good for you. Reading history and I guess mm. self-help and gardening books or something is is good for you, but fiction is just eh. But this kind of disputes that and says actually mm-hmm. studies now, more recent studies are showing that reading fiction even is good for our brains. So I thought that was cool. Well, you know, whenever I hear that that thing, and you know, you always hear it, you've always heard a version of that where it's like entertainment is frivolous, mm-hmm. you know, but it's so, it's so direct and, and, and unimaginative and like, when I was a kid, you know, I, my mom, again, once I, I've mentioned before, my mom was very supportive. So this is why I don't have a great life story because it's not like I had to fight against the odds. But 
I would read comic books and sometimes, you know, my mom's friends might say something like, oh, you do like them reading comics? And my mom's like, they enjoy it. And, you know, if you look at these things, she wouldn't want to read it too because she wanted to keep what's going on. She's like, you know, they're, they're stories. They're talking about stuff. There's interesting things going on. And this is like, it's, it's got good writing. So, and so I do think it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things I think about humans is it's interesting when someone's like enjoying yourself is frivolous when it's not just that, even if it didn't help you with anything else, enjoying yourself is kind of why life is sometimes worth living, (laughs) but also it's, it's really, it's childish to me to think that like, if it's not specifically educational, it's not affecting you in an educational and positive way, you know? Yeah, I agree. And when people would say like, I don't know, when they'd make fun of you for reading or whatever, I, I never got really mad about that. I always just felt deeply sad for those people like that yeah. they don't yeah. get to experience what we do, right? Yeah. All right. Our next story is about pirate ships. Arg. Um, <laughs> uh, there is apparently a pirate uh, I don't know if they even, I don't know if that's how they identify themselves, but according to this article on Goody Reader, there's a, I guess, a site called Z Library, and it's known for being a place to pirate ebooks, basically. And apparently, they've created some new Chrome and Firefox extensions to redirect users to alternate domains. If, say, perhaps they're primary domain were to be taken down by like i don't know the government they wanted a way for people to continue pirating books i guess so that's what that's what they did come on people just we don't make that much money by just buy the books well i was uh talking to a a friend of mine a writer uh russell c connor he he does a uh he's pretty successful self-publishing horror right now and he was saying you know people want art they just don't want to pay for it right yeah. and it's a weird i don't want to say entitlement because that's not the wrong word it's just a weird way of looking at the labor of the artist mm-hmm. and and i mean i'm with you we don't make that much but also there's there's i mean right now there's people who make free art for you to have so go go with their stuff why are you stealing my stuff you can just get free art from some other person that's deliberately doing it so that part is where I get a little frustrated, especially because, you know, at the end of the day, it it's just it's a psychology that is difficult because it's that thing about like I, you know, especially writing. I said this before, even compared to other things like I do cartooning and as a cartoonist, I'm mildly talented. But like when I would do cartooning, people would be like, wow, that's amazing. You should get paid to do that. And then you're and I'd like, say, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I, I, I'm trying to be a writer. And they're like, oh, I've always wanted to write a book. <laughs> like it just the perception is very different, even mm-hmm. though it's it's still a skill and art. So I think that's one of those things, especially with writing, because it just looks like a page. It's like, oh, I can do that. Yeah. And no, no, it's it takes more work than it looks. Right. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think you you hit on something pertinent for me is saying that it's not quite entitlement. It's just a weird view we have as a society. It's like I try yeah. not to hold it against people, you know, but that is a very common thing. Like, hey, when are you going to give me one of your books? Like, well, when mm-hmm. you give me the cost for me to order it for you, like, come on yeah. now. Now, the flip side of that, too, though, is like I even put in my self-published titles, I even put a thing in there is like if somebody really wants to read something of mine and they just can't afford it, send me a message and I will cut you a PDF of one of my titles. Like, I'm not that precious about it. Right. But at the same time, like, ultimately, I'd like to make a living at this and I can't do that if I can't sell them, you know. Well, and you know, like I don't, like I don't make money from used books, but I totally support used books because that's great for, you know, that's the thing. There's a book and it's out there and people can sell it and people can buy it and can, people can trade it. I mean, libraries are great. Libraries are a great resource. I have no problem with that. They bought my book and people can borrow it. Sure. Um, there's lots of legitimate way as of, of sharing a book that don't have to even, you don't have to spend that much money. And that's where I, I you run into the problem to me is when somebody's just like, well, I saw it at half price for like two fifty, but I didn't want to spend that much. You didn't want to give right. a book. Come on, man. I know I'm not even getting a piece of that. And I'm just like, that's legitimate. You can buy that book. That's I don't feel cheated about that. I'm like, that's what we're talking about when you get the weird stuff. Right. Meanwhile, I spent $30 at Panda Express the other day. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. But I don't want to spend nine ninety nine for a book I'm going to read for yeah. 20 hours. You know, yeah. come on. I can get this from the library, but uh, who's got the time? All right, fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, 
Chris isn't here to start off our AI news segment for us, right? I don't know if I can do the voice. I guess I could try for him. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. In our continued coverage of our robot overlords. How was that? Did I? That's good. I, I like nail it. it. Yeah. That was solid. Yeah, that was solid. <laughs> All right, Jade, you got the first story. This one was pretty messed up. So um, I don't know how many of you guys have heard of Jane Friedman. Um, she does a lot of like kind of writing advice type things, writing um, books. But apparently someone or several someones, I'm not really sure, uploaded tons of books onto Amazon claiming they were her books and was selling them through that and also on Goodreads. And she had shared this on social media, was kind of suspecting these books were generated by AI. But like basically it's these really poorly written books all added, uploaded to her profile with her name on them. And apparently she had some real trouble trying to get them removed because I don't know. Phil, do you know if that was Amazon fighting her on that or I'm not sure. So she reached out to, so it happened both on Amazon. So the books were uploaded to Amazon and then they were also tagged mm -hmm. to her Goodreads. Goodreads right, got her taken care of yeah. that day. I know Goodreads is owned by Amazon, but the Goodreads team, whoever they are, got her taken care of that day and got those right. disassociated from her. Amazon, it took the next day before they got to them, but they did. she did put an update in there that as, as of yesterday evening, August 8th, the fake books were removed. Good. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's damaging. Right. And that's weird to me because like, okay, so was it a targeted attack just trying to damage her? Because the books should have been connected to her account, you would think, unless they're somehow making money off of them and just trying to sell them with her branding on them that i would really bet hurt. i mean you don't know this is just the top of my head i i bet somebody just trying to trade they just probably just trading trading off her name i mean yeah it's the commodity uh i mean who knows what's going on either but but i would feel like that's just a thing where someone tried to slip something in to to get some money i mean you know there's always first thing that anything new technology comes along is how can i make a scam out of it right yeah i would lean towards that being the case because the titles were all like at least the ones she put up on her site were like writing craft type books or writing business books, you know? So one of them was a step-by-step -step guide to crafting compelling eBooks, building a thriving author platform and maximizing profitability, right? So that's clearly targeting authors. And then they put her name associated with it to make it look like it came from her. So I think right. that they were probably trying to get a quick buck. Yes, yeah, definitely. Super gross. The next one though, our next story is kind of, an interesting one to me in that, well, let me just tell you. So this is about a platform called Prosecraft, and it isn't directly AI related, but I put it under this segment because the AI outrage is what sort of caused the drama here. So Prosecraft is a platform that apparently it's been around for a while for first off. I and mean, what they've done is they've built a database of 25,000 thousand plus books so that they could run detailed metrics about books basically right so in my head i'm imagining that to be things like you know what's the average word count for this genre of book or how does this word how many times does a word appear in this genre of books and i think based on what i've seen from the creator is like he was kind of trying to take the data engineer route to say how could i like sort of mechanically figure out how to write a really really good book but with all the recent AI outrage, somehow, some way, the platform and people talking about it went viral. And by and large, authors were very against it. And the creator ended up taking it offline. And basically, the, the authors were sort of making the same argument that, you know, they make against AI is like, I've not consented for my work to be a part of this platform or a part of this database. I think some people were confused maybe that it was AI, which it's not. But I think the one thing about it is whether you kind of agree or disagree, there's probably an argument that could be made that this database, if connected to an AI, would be very useful in training an AI on writing, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, AI, I think it's, it's a big mess. <laughs> yeah, it really is. We try to cover uh, what's I going mean, on and, you know. Yeah, yeah. I try to be open-minded about it to some aspects. There's things that come up that I'm just like, no, no, heck no. Um, and then there's other aspects where I'm like, okay, you know, at some point, 
AI technology is going to take a place in our world, and it's just what place is that going to be, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's the problem of what is the point? I mean, there are times when I hear the technology, if someone applies it, I'm like, oh, that kind of makes sense. But most of the time, I'm just struck by people who are just like, wow, now I can generate a million stories. And I'm like, well, sure, but one will be good. I mean, is that what you need to do? You can already go find it. There's already so much media <laughs> and so many things mm-hmm. that as a tool, I'm sure it'll have some place. I mean, I'm not going to be the guy who's like, you know, this technology is going to ruin the world. But it is right. just odd seeing it, it's just one of those things where it's, it's it's they talk about technology reinventing what we already have. It just feels like that. It just sure. feels like we're just writing, but worse. OK, thanks. <laughs> Which brings us to our next story. All right, so more AI, but this time in the art world. Um, apparently, Wizards of the Coast have an um, upcoming Dungeons & Dragons release, but some fans have had a bit of an outrage that a piece of art, at least one, um, in the book was AI-generated. And then the artist admitted to um, using AI for some of the touch-up work. So in response, Wizards of the Coast has put out a statement that they're updating their guidelines and making it clear the artists cannot use any AI whatsoever or any Dungeons and Dragons art. Yeah, I think that's definitely Dungeons and Dragons should remain pure, I feel like, right? So I think that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's just, it's interesting. I still am just, I guess, again, just the thing I'm struck by is the idea of uh, using a machine to make art when it's like, there's no shortage of art. I'm just, I am struck by that selling point it's like now we can make more we, we already have too much like we, i think we all agree right there's too many books i can't read all the books i want to read right. i can't look at all right. the art i want to make all the tv shows and sure. then someone's like hey we found a way to increase this a million fold uh congratulations like i don't i don't it's it's interesting when i hear it because that's what i just keep yeah. going back to is i'm like well um there might be a use for this technology but right now i don't know what the purpose is Right. I have so many unread books that if I never mm-hmm. bought another one for the rest of my life, I'd be good for probably the next few decades. Can mm-hmm. confirm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so many. Just before I move on to the next story, I do need to call out because it just popped in my head. The last time we saw Lee was at SoonerCon. And uh, I got to give him some props because we were in this like late night chat where AI came up and it was it got to be a pretty intense conversation and i kind of was just like i'm not gonna take part in this it just seems like an argument but lee definitely had some some shade thrown his way for his opinions on things and and he handled it like a champ i thought it was great sure it's a contentious topic it's a a difficult topic i thought it was funny because you made a point at some point something came up about people being on their phones all the time and and lee you said something to the effect of like yeah, I mean, these devices are really great. They're really useful. I support them. I think they're great to have. But yeah, we definitely do spend too much time on them. And we need to be mindful of or something like that, right? And then a little bit later, you were looking at something on your phone or whatever, and some guy got really mad and was like, you're just not even paying attention. You've just been on your phone the whole time right after you said. <laughs> and Lee just very calmly was like, I said that I support being on phones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that was good. All right. Well, our next story, and this one was very funny to me, is some people are generating travel guides with AI. What could possibly Jeez. go wrong? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> According to this article on Good E-Reader, there has been a flood of AI-generated travel guides uploaded to Amazon. Many claim to have been written by famous travel writers, and they're doing something to get five-star reviews. So unwitting would-be travelers are falling for the bait. Surely this will not end poorly. <laughs> I, I immediately thought when I saw this, I thought, these rocky mountains aren't that rocky. That John Denver's full of crap. <laughs> 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 um, which is, it's funny, but it's also scary, right? Because you might have somebody who's traveling to, it doesn't even matter. Look, every major city in the world has a bad part of town, right? Like, <laughs> well, it's just, it's also just, it, I love what they, what they call it. What do they call it in AI? They call it hallucinating. It's hallucinating information, <laughs> which I'm just like, no, it's just making stuff up because it doesn't know anything. It's right. just putting together one word after another, but they're acting, even the word hallucinating is giving it more agency than it's not mm-hmm. delusional. It's just, so I think what's interesting is 
but this is not, this is just a new variation of the same thing, which is, you know, you have to be skeptical on the internet. You got to be skeptical in this world sure. about what you see and absorb. Yeah. And as humans, we're just not very good at it. We're, it's why you can fool us, right? Because if it sounds, I've always said, if you sound confident when you say something, people will believe you. And since mm-hmm. I say it with confidence, people believe me when I say that. And <laughs> but, so I think it's just, and that's the great thing. I mean, the reason AI can be so convincing is because, yeah, it's, it's hallucinating, but really it's just, it doesn't care what it's saying and it'll say it with confidence and people will be like, oh, okay, that, well, it just said it. Like, we're just really bad at reading like at confidence as truth. And I think it, it shows up a lot on the internet and this AI stuff is just more of that, you know? Yeah, sure. All right, well, my last one on here, Actually, just I added because I thought it was really funny. There's an article on TechCrunch, and it talks about what happened with Prosecraft and also the Jane Friedman thing. But it was really just the title that made me laugh that I had to share it. And the title of the article is, Authors are losing their patience with AI, part 349,235. <laughs> <laughs> That's Accurate. very appropriate. Yes. All right, well, that's the news. All right, for tools this time around, and we're going to talk about Wix, which is a website builder, would probably be the best way to describe it. I first came across it, that'd be several years ago now. What would you say, Phil, 2015 or 16, something like that? Yeah, that's probably right. Somewhere in there. So I think what kind of drew me to it was, so I'd been using another site called Canva to kind of generate different images I needed to use for things. So you can make, you know, flyers, posters, social media posts, anything with graphics. And the kind of the way you use it and can drag things around and move them, Wix's interface was similar. So at least in that regard to me, like, okay, I've dealt with this before. This is user-friendly. And before that, I was, I think I was using like webs or something. And that one you can't just put anything anywhere on the page. It had to go in specific boxes. And if it didn't fit, then you had to choose a new layout. Wix was way friendlier as far as like, okay, I want this right here and I'm going to just drag it there. And then it's, that's where it is. So I, I really liked that. And once I had played around with it a bit, it was a no brainer to switch from webs to Wix. And they've really added a whole bunch of features over the years, like all sorts of new stuff that like I haven't even delved into all of it with the, the different metrics and things they offer. Yeah. So Phil, um, when I first introduced you to it, um, you were, what were you using? I was on WordPress. That was it. Yeah. So I was on WordPress and WordPress is really good. The thing for me was like, I'm not that technical. I always joke about on the show mm-hmm. being kind of an idiot. And obviously I've worked in you know, the tech world a little bit, but that doesn't mean I know anything. And I was very much fumbling my way through WordPress and I got it to work and I had a reasonably okay looking website and I kind of figured out how to use the plugins and things and and I could do some stuff. But when you showed me what you were doing on Wix, I was like, this Mm -hmm. is the platform for, you know, an idiot like me who doesn't have the the technology skill to you know, write HTML and stuff. So mm-hmm. I swapped over and I'm glad I did. That's why I wanted it on our tools list because I think our both our websites, I think, look really, really good. And that's what I made the futurebestsellerpodcast.com one as well. And I did it, right? Like it's, I didn't have to hire anybody or, or anything like that. And it's not even that like time intensive. I think it's been a while since I did mine, but like future bestseller, I want to say maybe I've got an hour and a half of work into that, something like that. It's it's not a lot. And I think it's a pretty yeah. professional looking website. So I think we would both highly recommend for somebody if, who's just needing to get their, right. their brand set up. Yeah, they're really good about that. They have the different like templates and layouts that if you if you want someone to design something for you, it, they've kind of already got the templates there and you can just use those and change the colors and pictures if you want. Um, but then they also give you the freedom if you just want to start from scratch or rearrange things like you can do whatever you want with that. I think they even have the option where you can play around with the HTML, too, if you do have that knowledge. I think so. And but everything else is for the non HTML people's drag and drop. Right. 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 I think if I was going to make one complaint, my complaint would be the newsletter. Whenever I go to do a newsletter, I mean, it works and it's built in and that's great. And it does what I need it to. But what I find is like 
there's some oddities that happen occasionally. And I actually haven't done a newsletter in a little bit, so it's possible they fix this. But I don't know, just get kind of wonky. Like I'd try to like type in one box and it would just be like, oh, did you want this three boxes down? And I'm like, no, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? And like things would just kind of jump real funky. It might be because I'm stupid, but that that's my only my only negative. I was going to say it might be something with you because I've done multiple newsletters with Wix's platform and I've never had any of those issues. Chris, I need you to cut JH saying that so that I don't sound stupid. <laughs> this is a message Wix, for Chris. As long as you're not too dumb. Yeah. <laughs> they should pay us for that. They need to pay us for that new slogan they just got. <laughs> um, that's good. Lee, what do you use for your website? I think it's, yeah, I have a, a website, AliteMartinez.com. Um, a guy runs it for me, a fan. He kind of set it up and all that. So I think it's WordPress. Okay. Um, I don't know. I I'm, I mean, I literally, I just go to it and log in and do stuff. No, that's cool. <laughs> I didn't do anything. I didn't set anything <laughs> up with it. A fan set it up for me. He was he was way back then, and he's he's been running for me since. And that's no, so very cool. It's very, yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, WordPress I will is keep Wix in mind. If, if there's a yeah. fallout or something happens and he, he can't do it anymore, I will keep books in mind as long as I'm not too dumb. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if, you, if that happens to you, you're welcome to give me a call and I can help you through it. It's not that okay, hard. Good. Okay. Um, I got a backup. I got a backup. Yeah. But if you are on WordPress, mm-hmm. WordPress is really great, especially if you have, have somebody who knows how to do everything on it. It's it's phenomenal. So It works pretty well. I'm, I'm, I mean, I don't get a ton of visitors on my website, but uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, you gotta have it though, right? <laughs> I guess I gotta have it. I'm sure. I'm just like all of us. Uh, I'm starving for any kind of attention and approval. So if I get one reader a week, I'm like, oh, I keep going this week. Oh boy. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, that'll be our tools segment. As JH just pointed out to me while we were not recording, is that if Christopher was on with us. He probably would have stopped me or JH and said, how do you spell Wix for the listeners? So JH, how do you spell Wix for the listeners? W-I-X. I would have thought it would have been W-I-X-F-O-R-L-I-S. No. <laughs> that was my Chris joke. That was my insert of Chris joke. That one was for you, buddy. I wish you were here on with us, but I had to get one bad joke in just for you. All right. Creatives on fire. Let's do this. So with Lee on, I think let's talk about Lee's villain origin story a little bit. His path to breaking in and, you know, getting that first sell to a big publisher and getting his agent and kind of your road. What happened? Okay, so my road is pretty weird. It's not the road I recommend taking. It's not the road many people will take. So I started uh, seriously pursuing writing about. 18, 19, I, I would write and I'd send stuff out. And I would write and send stuff out, write and send stuff out. And uh, I found the uh, DFW Rise Workshop and I would go there and I would, you know, get it's a great organization. And then fast forward about 13 years, I still haven't broken in. I haven't got any successes. Mm-hmm. And I was about ready to stop. I was, this is where I was going to go become a juggler. This part's pretty and normal. This part of your story is pretty standard. This is very normal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then. Yeah. <laughs> Some people at my workshop had been to different conferences and they'd met Paul Stevens, who was an editor at Four, and he was just sort of looking for writers, interesting writers, uh, science fiction, fantasy. And and my the workshop DFW isn't specialized in fantasy, so there weren't a lot. At that moment, there weren't a lot of fantasy science fiction writers. And they were like, well, there's this guy at our workshop. He's pretty good. We like him. We think he's grown a lot. And so after he had talked to like three different people at three different conferences or something, he sent word back and they were like, hey he wants you to send him something. And I was just like, yeah, 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 sure, sure, whatever. I was bitter. <laughs> and then, so I sent him uh, the first book, Kills Off Right Diner. Uh, and then eventually he contacted me and we, I remember the phone call we had at first where he was just like, uh, what have you got published? I got nothing. Where have you, where'd you graduate? I just got high school. Are you worried? I'm going to tell you, yeah, I don't want your book. I'm like, yes. And he's like, no, no, I just need information to pitch it to the editors above me. You know how it is. There's always somebody above so he got the information and then eventually through happenstance and luck, uh, the, the first book got accepted for publication. And I it was just me directly with Tor. Like I didn't have an agent. Uh, it was sure. just me in the contract. And book contracts, they might have changed since then. I don't look at them the same way I used to. But 
they're pretty straightforward. It wasn't too tricky. And so my first three books were just directly with Tor uh, with, and Paul Stevens. And then it was my, my first book was got some, a featured review uh, in Publishers Weekly. And so there was like buzz on it. And a couple of years later, I get a call about like, we're interested in optioning this book. And just by coincidence, Sally Harding, her son had read my book. And she, he comes in and she's like, he's like, this book's really good. And, and she's like, well, I know Paul at Tor. I've never heard of anybody representing this guy. So she called him and he was like, well, he doesn't have an agent right now. So she called me and I was like, well, I don't need an agent right now for exactly for literary, but maybe the, the book, the movie deal. So she took that on for me. And that's okay. that eventually a couple years later, she just became my full literary agent. And then from then on, that's how it works. So kind of a weird process. It was a very weird path. I mean, it worked. I'm not complaining, but it's it's an odd journey. <laughs> no, I think that's fair because I think um, and I think that's important for the listeners to hear because I don't know that many authors traditionally published that have had the nor- what we would think of as a normal path. Right. There, there tends to always be some amount of like these sort of oddball things all came together for me just right. You know, well, I think that's always true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and in, in your story, you know, there's a big piece in there, like, had you not joined the DFW group and obviously built good relationships with those people, they probably wouldn't have made that recommendation for you, right? Sure, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the DFW, I mean, well, it's, it's how I even got my wife, so I can't, they, they give me too much. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just that, like, piece around, you know, one, like, you didn't give up and you built a relationship with groups of people who were, you know, interested in your success. And I think that that's important to have friends and, and people in your corner that are interested in your success. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point because, you know, we talk about connections and it doesn't mean like, uh, use people. It doesn't mean like try to just get to powerful people. But I, I do believe when you, I mean, even, you know, we were just at SoonerCon and I just recently did ArmadilloCon. And part of the reason I do those cons is, it's great to you know meet fans, but also it's a great chance to meet other professionals and form relationships and you never know where they're going to pay off. But also it's just, it's good, right? It helps you to bring opportunities. And I, again, I don't think you have to be manipulative. You just be yourself and be yeah. interested in other people's success and they'll be interested in yours. And I think it's it's an important part of the path. And I, I think it's, a, you're right, a neglected part of the path. And so much of writing, especially if you don't have a group, is solo. You're, you're by yourself, you're adrift. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things I do also recommend is if you can find a good group that can help you with the struggles. I mean, the DFW Writers Workshop is a great group because we're all levels. And like, it was funny when I, I mean, I always talk about how it's hard to tell now, but I was super duper shy when I was young, like super duper shy. And I remember when I got my, like my first book published and they they were going to say, oh, you get the editor notes, right? And I get the notes and he's like, oh, don't worry, it's not that bad. And I'm like, oh my God, what, <laughs> what does that mean? You know? It's like, oh, it's good. Don't worry about it. And, I, and then, and this is back when snail mail. So I get the manuscripts and I open it up and I'm just like expecting to see like all these things like, you know, this sucks. What are you doing? <laughs> and it was just normal stuff. It was just notes. But I realized it was because of the experience I had talking about my book with regular, with the other writers and getting mm-hmm. used to it. So the editing process went a lot smoother. And then when I did my first convention, I'd never done one. And I was like, I mean, I have no clue what's going on. But I realized, oh, I'm just talking about my book. I do that all the time with my friends about that. So mm-hmm it changed the way I do it. And it's, it's why I think it's important to have a good support structure, whatever that is, and good information, which, you know, goes back a little bit to the AI talk, you got to watch out for bad information. Mm-hmm. And I think so I think that's the universal thing you will see. Uh, I was just going to ask about um. so probably the weirdest thing for me from your story was the fact that the agent called you. So I'm, I'm just imagining <laughs> yes. what that would have been like. Because you see that where you'll you'll see agents on social media like, oh, yeah. agents will never call you. So I'm like imagining yeah. an agent, like someone calls me claiming to be an agent. Like my first thought is this is a scam, at least until I've had time to research them and verify they are who they say they are. So <laughs> what was that like? Well, I think my editor alerted me in advance. So I was ready. Okay. Um, I was weird. <laughs> that helped. Because you're right. You're, you're always like, well, what's that going to What's that mean? That's that's why it's a little odd because because you, you want to watch out for that. But I think I was alerted in advance, so I was ready for it. You know, because <laughs> it would have been. You're right. I make the joke about somebody not going to call you up. I would be like, someone's like, hey, we want to publish your book. I don't know who you are. What's going on? This is right. out of the blue. I'm scared. No, I get it. I get it. Good skepticism. What we're talking about. <laughs> I was going to touch on the piece 
I think it's very missed by a lot of authors who don't go to conventions. And that is that, you know, within your friends and family, like we're all pursuing this like rabid monkeys, right? And people who aren't in that world sort of don't get it. So there's something very, for me, like when I walk into a convention, we walk into the bar or something and you sit down and you're just surrounded by people who are pursuing the same thing you are. And it's like, you just kind of have a sigh of relief that like this person gets it. Like I can have a real conversation with somebody who gets it. It's the thing about, it can feel weird. It can feel like, am I doing something weird? Mm -hmm. You know? And again, DFW Rise Workshop, I've been the member for like, 30 years now, I don't know, too long. But one of the things that somebody will come in and I can see that look of relief on somebody's face when it's just like, oh, this is a place where this is normal. This is not a weird goal. And it's not a weird goal, right? We all have goals right. and, and and pursuing artistic goals. And it changes it from this sort of, I mean, again, it's not always, I mean, like, I, again, I had a lot of support from my mom and uh, she was sure. always, you know, behind me. But like, it still changes it from, this isn't a weird dream to, this is an achievable goal. This is not something that's odd. Yeah. And that can be really helpful. And it's also, you know, we all go through the same struggles. I mean, so much of the struggles I've come across as a writer, I, I learn to expect from when I talk to other writers. And mm -hmm. also, so many of the struggles we go through every day, we're like, oh, yeah, we're all going through it. And it changes it because it's so easy to be like, well, am I sucking? Just, am, I, is, is, am I just doomed? And when you talk to someone, you're like, oh, yeah, we're all kind of struggling with that same thing. On it. Like, it, one of the things I've always said is like, and it's a piece of advice that uh, uh, Jane Linskold, the writer, gave me when I first was broke in and, and I was at a dinner with her and she was just she was like, you know, you just you never made it. You know, you're, you're always just doing that next thing. And it it's nice because, one, I, I'm moderately successful and, and it keeps me from being a complete douche, you know, because mm -hmm. I'd be like, pff, pff, I'm great. No, you look at you meet some people who are trying just as hard as you, if not harder and have it succeeded. And, uh, but also you realize it's just, it's so, it's not weird. It's a very common thing we go through and it's just something that it, it's invaluable. It's invaluable to not feel like what I'm going through is weird, right? We all yeah. do that. We all go, man, when am I going to get that net break? How can I get people to get excited about what I do? And, you know, even me, I've said, I've, I've got some really good luck on some of my books. I'm not, you know, and I'm just like, mm, I'm writing this new thing now. And I'm like, I don't know if people are going to like this. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's it's a struggle, but it's also you're right. It's very nice to know that it's not just you. Yeah. And I think that's a really positive note for us to end on. So, Lee, tell the people where to find you. You can find me at uh, aleemartinez.com on my sporadically updated blog where I post how to write or weird opinions or short stories. I'm also on I mean, I don't know how much longer I'm on X or Twitter. I don't post too much on that, whatever you want to call it. Uh, a. Lee Martinez, at A. Lee Martinez. I, I am on Blue Sky, A. Lee Martinez dot Blue Sky, whatever that is. And Facebook, A. Lee Martinez Action Force, I think is what it is. If you look me up, you should find me. And that's it. That's mostly where you find me. Now, you can also reach me on my email. I'm going to let the people know. You can reach me on my email, hipstercthulhu at hotmail.com. If that was my email, I would tell everyone. <laughs> sure. And it's Cthulhu. Look it up. You can find it. I'm always happy to hear from fans. I'm always happy to hear from people who want writing advice. My writing advice usually is talking to somebody who knows more, but still I'm happy to do it. And uh, there you go. All right, JH. Uh, you can find me on all the social media stuff. I'm for hire as an editor on Fiverr. Ooh. Also, my band's on a ton of music sites now. We just had our second single release yesterday. Oh, cool. So Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm on all those places. All right, and I'm Philip Dreyer Duncan, and you can find me at philipdreyerduncan.com or in Kansas if this storm picks back up. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris isn't here for me to do the normal joke about Chris doesn't want to talk to you, but uh, listen, people, we need to get some hashtag Chris sounds hot going <laughs> so that I can show him and he'll he'll come back. Now he'll be back. He's he had he had important things today. FutureBestsellerPodcast.com. That's our website. And Lee, appreciate you coming on, man. Good to talk to you again. Thank you very much for having me. It was, it was an honor. Thank you for your patience with the bad weather and the two takes that it took us to get here. But I think we've got it now. Yep. Fingers crossed. <laughs> right. All right. Well, we'll get you back on sometime. Thanks so much. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm.